Are you listening? The Global Voices Podcast. The world is talking. Are you listening? Hello world, and welcome to another edition of the Global Voices Podcast. I'm your audio friend, Jamila. On this edition, we're going to explore the world of underrepresented languages online and find out what people can do to join the 1111 campaign with us. So first, do you speak a language that's hard to find online? Are you from a place where your mother tongue is not widely spoken? Then you may be a part of a large group of people around the world who speak and write underrepresented languages. The good news is, here on Global Voices, we would like you to raise that voice and join a dialogue to work out ways in which these languages can be strengthened, celebrated and reinforced. Eddie Avila is the director of Rising Voices with Global Voices Online, and he told me how he came to explore this subject. It all started with my work here in Bolivia. I've been working with a group of young people from El Alto. They are indigenous members of the Aymara community, and they took part in some of our blogging workshops, and they started to blog in Aymara. And it started this process of attracting other young people to start using these tools to you know, write in Aymara, and more importantly, connect with others around the world who are seeing their native language now available online. And so it's much more active. This group has been using Facebook and Twitter. They have their own blog. They started working with the Wikipedia version of Aymara and just a way to contribute to the content available online. And so most of these young people are bilingual, in some cases trilingual, but they're able to be that bridge between you know, Spanish and Aymara and they don't need to have the full range of the internet available on Aymara, but they could use the tools that are available in Spanish to contribute content in Aymara. And so that sort of started my interest in this field. And I think, you know, using these tools, using the internet as a good motivator and a good way to attract young people to use what's fashionable these days, you know, Facebook and Twitter, and to be able to use it to uh, continue learning and using their native language online. Is there a gap at all between the people who are speaking indigenous or underrepresented languages and the younger generation that you mentioned there? It's all in the context of where these communities are located. For example, El Alto in Bolivia, it's about about a city of about a million people. And so it's very connected to the internet. And some say that it's the most active city in Bolivia in terms of using the internet. But then if you go out further out into the rural countryside, you know, those communities don't have internet. And so those are some of the people that are yet to take full advantage of these tools. But then again, there's a lot of people from Bolivia who migrate, you know, outside of the country. They may go to other countries outside of the normal immigrant population of Bolivians, say Argentina, Spain, United States, where there are a lot of Bolivians, but say if they go to Japan or China, where they may be the only Bolivian and they may feel like they're so far removed from their culture that they may not want to continue using Aymara because they don't see the need. But once they go online, that they can see you know, a Facebook page where they're able to connect with someone back home. That's a very powerful tool to get people connected to a community and feel part of the larger community. 
Now, you've been writing about this already on the Global Voices website. Do you hope also that it'll inspire people to use other forms of media? Because obviously language, it's nice to hear examples, especially if you're not familiar with a particular language, to get to know it, or indeed to hear it if you used to speak it. Are you encouraging people to try and upload video and audio too? Yeah, absolutely. I think the best thing about citizen media is that it has different forms, whether it's written, but also you know, just spoken audio. There's a community in the Northern Territories of Australia that I just discovered and how they're engaging young students to be able to speak their language using podcasts and uploading that into the internet. Uh, there's also many communities that are using video and that's very valuable for those languages that may not have written alphabet or whether there's not a consensus on how to best develop these languages in a written format. So, you know, audio, video is always a great way to bridge that gap in the meantime. And so how are you hoping that people will get in touch? Are you encouraging others to discover areas that we may not have seen before or to bring them to your attention to or to discuss it also on the Global Voices website? Yeah, I mean, right now we're organizing the online dialogue together with the organization New Tactics, which is providing the platform. We're also partnering with Indigenous Tweets with Kevin Scannell, who has been documenting different language communities that are on Twitter. And so we're just inviting anyone who is working in this field to participate in the dialogue as a way to share their experiences, but also learn from others, maybe discuss challenges and, and also solutions that they've come up with to make sure that their language is well represented online. And that's kind of a way to bring people together and start the conversation and see where this all goes. Well, you heard Eddie there mention Kevin Scannell. He's a professor of mathematics and computer science at St. Louis University in Missouri. He talked about how he got into the field of indigenous tweets and blogs from around the world. I've been working for more than 10 years now with indigenous and minority language groups around the world to try and help develop technology that helps them use their languages online. One of the things I've been doing lately is focusing on social media, in particular Twitter and blogs. One of the things we'd like to do, in addition to building tools to help people use their language online, is to encourage them to actually do that. So for a lot of languages, there's a psychological barrier to using the language online because there's a perception for many small languages that English, for the most part, is the language of the computer. So people feel like it's not right for them to use their native language online because everybody uses English online. In particular, trying to get people to use social media sites like Twitter in their native language instead of choosing to do it in English. In March of this year, I created a website that essentially tracks all of the people that are using Twitter in an indigenous or minority language. We started out with about 30 languages, all reasonably small languages with small speaker populations. And we're now up to almost 120 different small languages, which are represented by users on Twitter. As well as the psychological problems that you've outlined there, what are the technical problems? Because I understand that a lot of languages don't even have font representation, let alone to be able to express in a natural way what people would hope to say. Fonts are a major issue. And even if there are fonts, keyboards are an issue. So a lot of languages that are written, say, in the Latin alphabet, like English or French, might have unusual diacritic marks, accents, and things like that that are difficult to type in on a keyboard. And then there are plenty of languages with their own script. I mean, if you look at the languages spoken in Ethiopia, several of the languages have syllabic script that can be difficult, challenging, if not impossible, to type on standard keyboards and extremely difficult to input, say, on a, on a phone, which is the way a lot of minority language speakers are, are accessing the internet now. One of the other focuses we have is 
proofing tools, so creating things like spell checkers. If it makes sense, if a language has some standardized spelling, again, this is another way of breaking down an obstacle that people have to using the language online because a lot of smaller languages are, for the most part, spoken languages. They might not have a long written tradition, so people aren't always comfortable typing and, and seeing the language in, in the written form. So having something like a spell checker can, can be a big help. How are you identifying these languages? I mean, it's, it's obviously quite difficult to identify something by its absence. A lot of the languages come just from endless searching. So I have a database of words and short texts in almost a thousand languages that I've gathered over the past 10 years from websites and web pages. So one of the things I can do is I can find words that are unique to each language or virtually unique to each language. And then I can do automated searches on Twitter for those words to see who's using those words. If I find somebody uses one of those words, I can check to see whether they're really tweeting in, in language X or language Y. So a lot of it is kind of a semi-manual, semi-automated searching. And then I get a lot of suggestions from people in the communities. So the word about the site spread pretty quickly through Twitter. And this is really how we went up from 30 to 120 languages in such a short period. People from Twitter would write to me and say, hey, you don't have Breton or you don't have Igbo or you don't have Cornish. Could you add it to the site? And here's a list of the people tweeting. So there's definitely been a social aspect to the site. And if you go to the language pages on indigenoustweets.com, you could actually take me out of the equation and just enter in Twitter usernames for people that are missing from the site. What sort of feedback do you get from people? Because it must be wonderful to find people who speak your language or your dialect online. That's been the reaction that I get from most of these language communities is that they're amazed that there are 5,500 people tweeting in Basque or more than 4,000 tweeting in Welsh all the way down the line. And amazement even that there's a single person tweeting in some of the smaller languages. We have some languages, a couple Aboriginal languages of Australia that have maybe two dozen speakers and there's one person who's who's tweeted in the language. So that's kind of remarkable that the, those people are out there and that they're choosing to step up and use their language online. Are you also getting feedback from people who hope to preserve or develop languages that are underrepresented so you're basically helping to keep them alive it's a small piece of a much bigger problem and a much bigger puzzle so i certainly don't pretend that that creating a site like this and connecting people on twitter is going to save any of these languages it's a small piece of it and what really saves languages is when people make the choice to use the language and especially to speak it to their children when young people have small children that's a choice that they have to make. If there's the perception that a language is useless, it has no economic benefit, or it doesn't do any good in the, in the modern world, then people tend not to make that choice. If we don't do things like this, if we don't allow people to use their languages online, then certainly there's the perception that the language of the internet and the language of modernity is English or French or, or Spanish. It's a small piece in a, in a bigger puzzle, but we're certainly doing things like this with an eye toward language preservation. Do you know about Global Voices Lingua? Project Lingua amplifies Global Voices stories in languages other than English with the help of volunteer translators. It opens the line of communication with non-English speaking bloggers and readers of Global Voices by translating content into other languages. Find out more at globalvoicesonline.lingua. 
of course using a mobile phone to access the internet in an underrepresented language is still rather sadly less than simple. But the internet is filled with people who are willing to take on challenges and try to make our digital world a more inclusive place. One of our Global Voices authors, Aparna Ray, noted that language was a topic for this edition and kindly pointed me in the direction of Shubrantru Chowdhury. He works with CGNet Swara. It's a community radio on mobile phones in India. Here he explained how the service helps people who do not communicate in more widely spoken languages and how the project started. The area we are working in, uh, it's a central India and it's in the middle of a big war. It's a war between Maoist guerrillas and government of India, which our Prime Minister calls the biggest threat to India's internal security. So it all looks like a military story. But as a reporter, when I started looking around and went a bit deeper, what I found that it is actually a cause or break of communication. And that's where the language story comes in. The tribals whose number is around 100 million in central India, they speak various languages. And India as a nation has failed to support any of these languages. To give you an example that uh, there is no news bulletin in all India radio, which is the only radio station in India, uh, does not broadcast any news bulletin in any of these uh, languages. And these are remote areas. These are the poorest of the poor people of our community. So they do not have much of electricity. They do not have much of education. So radio is the only means to communicate. So there was a complete break of communication between India who lives in the cities or educated or urban India and this rural tribal India. And when you do not have a platform to communicate, to express your views or your grudges, if you like, then uh, you find other alternative platforms. And uh, by an accident of history, that alternative platform happened to be Maoist guerrilla. So that was the story of this biggest internal security threat. Which languages are being spoken in the region where you're working? Oh, there are hundreds of languages. Last week, we did a workshop in a place called Koraput, in Odisha, it's one of the states. And when I started counting, there were 10 languages being spoken. Odia is the main language of Odisha. And many of these tribals did not even speak Odia. That is the language of the state, which is not the main language of the country. So there are hundreds of languages and the tribals themselves cannot communicate with each other because what is happening is there is no education in these languages. So when a tribal, when I talked about 100 million tribals, they are divided into many states and each state has their own language, dominant language. So when a tribal gets educated, he gets educated in Odia and a tribal who may be from the same tribe gets educated in the other state he gets educated in some other language. So we found that you know, they were not able to communicate amongst themselves also. Not only there is a break of communication between tribals and non-tribals, these languages are also dying because they are not in use. 
they are used in very small locality and with small number of people so this platform we saw is helping tribals communicate with each other as well and maybe help these languages a bit more are there political obstacles as well because your future vision basically enables an enormous group of people across central India to raise their voices, to communicate and to get much more information. That could be very disruptive. If you say democracy is disrupting, then yes, we are doing that. It is an experiment of democratization of media. See, if I'm talking about India, before 1947, very few people, it was aristocratic. The politics was done by only few people but after that politics became everybody's business that's what we call democracy and we're seeing in the whole world people are you know fighting for democracy of course democracy has many pitfalls but that's the best way we have found so far to govern ourselves but if you look at journalism it is still aristocratic technocratic very few people like you and i decide what is news tomorrow but why not everybody decides it journalism is not rocket science it requires the same common sense what is required to do politics so what we are doing is we are doing the most democratic tool available today which is mobile phone we are linking it with internet we also want to link it with radio which we have not been able to do because of legal restrictions so if this experiment linking radio internet and mobile phone can democratize media as you said it will not only give information to a vast number of people it will bring information from them too it will democratize media and how can there be a democratic politics when your communication is not democratic there are so many really interesting initiatives online that can help us all explore underrepresented languages Christine Mladic is a program administrator at the Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies at New York University, and she's involved with a podcast series that highlights and spreads the use of Quechua or Quechua languages. Here's an excerpt from one of those podcasts where lecturer and author and poet Odi Gonzalez reads one of his poems. Mamacha Cocharcas Yuncamanta Collasuyomanta Palicae Wai kowai rahina piti sinturai pimuyurin pusah kutita. Ukumai kastilla palikai, luip achaipas, lukrisirakuna ruaskangmi. Chukchaitahmi langi simpan. There's a wealth of information that can be learned via these podcasts, so I asked Christine about where the Quechua or Quechua languages are spoken and how the project is developing. Quechua or Quechua is a language family with multiple dialects, and these languages are spoken throughout the Andean region of South America. These languages have a very long history. A lot of people mention that Quechua was the official language of the Inca Empire, but not a lot of people recognize that it was actually useful for the Inca in conquering the area because it was already spoken by many, many groups throughout the region. It's still spoken by many people today. And while there's a huge range of estimates, I've seen the numbers something like 10 to 12 million people still use the languages today. And with the languages come a whole system of knowledge and cultural expressions 
are very specific to the history, the memory, the beliefs, and the cultural practices of these peoples. Because it's a language, is it more important to represent this in audio as well as writing, or how could this be done? The thing about Quechua and Quechua languages is that they're primarily oral languages, and I don't believe that they were written down until the Spanish came in the 16th century and used the Spanish alphabet to try to write down these languages. Because of that, there's no standard Quechua, Quechua alphabet or way of writing. I mean, some people have tried to assert one for the consolidation of the languages, but this is a highly debatable topic as to how you should write it down. There's so many languages and dialects that it's a huge task to try to do that. So I think that for our project, our project is primarily an audio project, And the great thing about that is that we can circumvent some of the discrepancies in writing that might occur because you can still understand in listening and in speaking across some of these boundaries in between the the languages. So for us, where possible, we'll include transcripts with our podcast because that can be useful for people learning the language to have this other resource. How did this come about as a podcast? I used to be a student at NYU in the program where I now work, and I went through the Quechua program. Odi Gonzalez is our professor, and he's from Calca, which is outside of Cusco, Peru. Uh, so this is the kind of, of Quechua that he is teaching, is Cuscanian Quechua, primarily. After I graduated and I started working, and one of my goals is to continue to develop the Quechua program because it's very new at NYU. I was looking for resources online to listen to in my free time to keep up my language skills, to keep up my comprehension. And I really couldn't find a lot to listen to besides music. Immediately when I started thinking how I could produce something, I saw that this project is much, much larger than those initial intentions. You know, right now we're building this network of native Quechua and Quechua speakers throughout the New York City and New Jersey area. A lot of new friendships are coming out of this. It's very much about collaboration and exchange. And we have these meeting times where we get together to practice and to converse and to discover. And it's really become this beautiful project. You can find out all about these projects and more as Rising Voices is co-organising an online dialogue with new tactics for human rights and Indigenous tweets. It's called Using Citizen Media Tools to Promote Underrepresented Languages. It starts on November 16th, so come and visit. Do you know about Global Voices Advocacy? With Global Voices Advocacy, we seek to build a global anti-censorship network of bloggers and online activists throughout the developing world dedicated to protecting freedom of expression and free access to information online. Find out more at globalvoicesonline.org. As this is the November edition of the Global Voices podcast, it means that we are ahead of the date that reads 11-11-11. This day is also special for those who are participating in the 11-11 project. Danielle Loren is the creative director, and she explained what is about to happen and how we can all get involved. The 1111 project is a concept where on the 11th of November this year, 
We're asking people all around the world who have access to any recording device to capture their lives using film, photography, music, sounds and text. So it's basically like a day in the life of the world told by the people of Earth. And then post that date, we're going to take all that created content that people have submitted to us and we're going to turn it into different projects. So a photographic book, a world music collection and a documentary film. Have you had a lot of people already either pledge or, or state that they want to submit something? We've had traction in about 150 countries. So that's people who know about our project and have shown interest, which for us is unbelievable considering that we're running this entire organisation from Australia. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about technology is for the first time in humanity, you can really run a worldwide movement from one place and people can really connect. When it comes to turning all of this material into the consolidated versions that you mentioned earlier, have you got a team of, of volunteers or staff who are waiting to catch all of this material? We'll be doing the um, post-production in Sydney, but that doesn't mean that we won't be involving our community as well in that process. So we will be looking to our community to help us sift through what hopefully will be lots and lots of material from around the world. Everyone works on a rotation basis because everyone has other jobs to keep them financially alive. So I will work with the team to kind of give them an idea of what it is that I'm looking for in terms of editorially, in terms of the story. And we'll just spend the first few months just going through all the material, trying to find the ones that really speak to us and speak to what it is that we're trying to say as a project, but also to try and find the common threads that unite the story so that we can actually create a global narrative that has a beautiful sense of synchronicity. What is it that you hope to do with the product? What comes out of this project, whether it's the music collection or whether it's documentary in film or or the photo album, how would people be able to get a hold of this or, or how do you hope to share it? Once we get closer to completing our different projects like the documentary film or the photographic book, we'll be quite clear with our communities about where they can find them and where they can buy them. But the big thing that we're really excited about is what's happening on the 21st of September 2012, so next year on International Peace Day. What we're doing is we're providing screenings to as many people as possible, not online, but actually in community centres and in town halls or in universities. What we're doing is we want to have a minimum of 5,000 screenings that we want to provide for free to the community. So it's a project where not only do people contribute, but they can actually come together as a community and watch. Some of the people of Earth that Danielle mentioned there are also Global Voices authors and ambassadors for the 1111 project. So I asked a couple of them to tell me what their hopes for the day online would be like. My name is Salman Latif. I've been a Global Voices author for a couple of years now. Through some Global Voices colleagues, I got to know about the 1111 project. When I came to know about it, I was pretty excited and I thought that I really wanted to be a part of it. When I scrolled down the list of team members on the official website, I realized that no one was representing Pakistan as the international ambassador. And I thought that it really should be in Pakistan because it was a great opportunity for the number of social activists and bloggers here to participate in. To me, 1111 stands out as a project that aims to celebrate global diversity of different cultures around the globe. It's a global narrative that there will be collecting the voices of people from all around the globe on one single day 
and then presenting this work of art in a way that will promote global peace and they'll show that how deeply we are all connected even though we have our apparent differences. That way it is very meaningful to me. On the individual basis, I'm planning to do a couple of blog posts across a number of Pakistani blogging platforms that I'm part of. And I'm also intending to highlight this project at a couple of media sources. I have plans of bringing together a party to celebrate this event with a couple of other bloggers from Pakistan. So I'm looking forward to watching and listening to how people see things, hear things, and watch things from their perspectives from uh, around the globe. I think that's going to be a great experience for me. Uh, there'll be great learning experience for me. My name is Lala Chinrachnyan. I am the ambassador of 1111 Project for Madagascar. As an international ambassador, my role is to sensitize as many people as possible from my country to take part in the project. I created a Malagasy Facebook fan page for the event. I've attended some clubs where I presented the project. I've also contacted some journalists who published articles about 1111 project on some local newspapers. I blogged about this event as well. 11-11-11, I plan to take some photos of my day and my town. I will post some tweets as well, telling the world what I will experience that day. In the evening, I will post everything on my blog and on the 11-11 project website. I love 11-11 project because it is an opportunity to unite the world in a day and I do suggest each and every one to take part in this wonderful universal movement. That's all we have for this edition of the podcast. However, if you'd like to hear longer versions of the interviews with our guests and find out what their projects are like and see their websites, you can find all this and more at globalvoicesonline.org. The Global Voices Podcast. The world is talking. I hope you've been listening. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. You can follow Global Voices stories on Facebook too.